everyone, and welcome to this episode of Afronomics. I'm your host, Albert Zufak, Chief Economist for the Africa region at the World Bank. When we talk about sub-Saharan Africa, the topic of extreme poverty often comes up. And it is no wonder. The subcontinent is home to half of the world extreme poor and the number of the poor living in extreme poverty in sub-Saharan Africa is going up despite declining poverty rates. And yet sub-Saharan Africa is made up of low-income countries, middle-income countries, even high-income countries, but they all face one issue, inequality. Eight of the 10 most unequal countries in the world are in sub-Saharan Africa. And as a paradox, one of our richest economy is also the world's most unequal economy in the world, and it's South Africa. Today, I'm here to talk about this and more with Professor Harun Borat. Professor Borat is the director of the Development Policy Research Unit at the University of Cape Town in South Africa and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in the Global Economy and Development Program and the Africa Growth Initiative. Professor Borat's research focuses on labor economics, poverty, and income distribution, among many other things. Welcome, Harun. Thank you, Albert. You are a renowned scholar. You have worked so much on inequality and labor market issues. And I want to get your reaction to this basic statistic. Eight out of the 10 most unequal countries in the world are in sub-Saharan Africa. How do you react to this? Why does it matter? So another way to think about that, Albi, is that if you if you run... Uh, run the numbers for uh, Gini coefficients using the standard data, you find that uh, the average, not population weighted, but the average Gini for sub-Saharan Africa is at about Mm 0.43. If you compare that to the sample of developing countries, obviously excluding uh, Africa, that average is 0.39. So in fact, on average, uh, throughout, you know, if you take the continent uh, as a country, if you like, um, you've got average levels of inequality that are higher on the continent. But it turns out, and that speaks to your eight out of 10 most unequal countries in the world being an Africa story, it turns out that there are seven economies that are uh, drivers of this overall inequality in sub Saharan Africa, what we call the high inequality outliers, right. many of which are actually in southern Africa. And as you allude to, uh, one of which is, of course, South Africa. The other one being Namibia, which Namibia. is now number two in the Namibia, world. Namibia, Zambia, yeah. Botswana, mm-hmm. um, Angola, the Car, and uh, Comoros. So, so in many ways, it's a Southern Africa concentration where you see uh, uh, eye-wateringly high inequality levels on the continent. But where, where, where does this come from? How do you uh, some trace it to the legacy of apartheid? You know, what, what should we know about it? So they, that, that's a difficult question. I think I think that's uh, the, the determinants of why Southern Africa uh, yields such high inequality levels. I think it is partly to do with uh, historical circumstances, the sort of uh, the nature of colonialism mm-hmm. in those economies. I don't think we know enough. Economic historians can can shed some light, but I certainly think whether it's land ownership, whether it's uh, the nature of colonial rule. 
and the economic consequences of colonial rule in those very early years in Southern Africa that that uh, that sort of drove the pattern of inequality. Certainly, you can see very clear elements of that in South Africa, um, but I think. It, it does require closer attention. We're throwing out a, an analytical line to some extent in trying to think about whether it's a colonialism type story for Southern Africa. But I think for me, what's important is that despite eight out of 10 economies in the world being African in terms of high inequality uh, levels, uh, inequality trends have been on steady decline for the data that we have. So I think that's an important uh, piece of evidence as well to bring to bear that you, you are seeing this, uh, this uh, steady um, decline despite these, if you like, outliers still sort of uh, bringing up the average inequality levels on the continent. There are outliers in Southern Africa, Harun, but you also have a growing inequality in oil and uh, some resource-rich uh, middle-income or high-income economy in Africa as well, right? Yes. So you do you do have a problem with resource-rich economies uh, yielding. It turns out the evidence, ironically, is slightly mixed. So if you, if you do the standard sort of uh, distribution measures on inequality, you find that on average there's no difference statistically between uh, uh, inequality in resource-rich economies relative to non-resource-rich economies. So the average effect doesn't hold if you take those samples. But there is, if you like, a little, uh, uh, a little thick tail at the high end of the resource dependence distribution of inequality. And that means that you've got the possibility of resource dependent economies uh, leading to very high unequal uh, distributions. And I think that then speaks to the danger of, a, of a, a growth path that's only defined by resources and a dependence on resources because that leads to, firstly, a capital-intensive growth path, right. which, which will have unequal outcomes because it's not employment generating. Uh, the kind of governance failures that tend to come with resource dependence, um, the rent-seeking and so on. So, so you can see the confluence of resource dependence leading to inequality, uh, high inequality outcomes. Statistically, it's not quite true. Again, again, it's certainly driven by a couple of outliers. Exactly. And as that, that thick tail you mentioned. So we've spoken on, you know, the colonial heritage leading to more unequal societies. We've discussed uh, natural resources also driving uh, unequal societies, especially high dependency on oil and, and minerals driving inequality. But another aspect of inequality in our society is wage inequality, Harun. And this is an area where you have done quite a lot of work. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, your findings? In countries like South Africa, we actually have a U-shaped curve when it comes to wage inequality. Can you elaborate a little bit more? Yeah, so Albert, this is... um so starting at the end, if you like, um, with the uh, with the 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 statistical observation that when you look at um, the growth rate of wages in South Africa for the period post apartheid ninety four to the present or to the two thousands, and you plot that against uh, percentiles of the wage distribution over time, that graph is U shaped which is very, very surprising for us because it suggests something very similar to what's happened in, um, in North America and in Europe, namely that 
um, those in the middle of the distribution have actually lost out, what they call the missing middle. Um, So this is surprising in the context of South Africa because we would have expected gains. So our prior story about South Africa in terms of wage inequality was growth in demand for high-skilled workers given the whole sort of skills bias technical change model. And so you see this high premium for highly skilled workers. And so you, you expect very high levels of wage growth for them. They then are supposed to lead uh, across the distribution in sort of a um, monotonic fashion. So in other words, just an upward sloping uh, curve where those at the bottom gain the least, those in the middle a little bit more, and then those at the top end uh, are the big winners. This was surprising for us. Um, and, and it does suggest that the inequality dynamics um, that you're beginning to see in, a, uh, if you like, in a middle-income country context like South Africa um, is unusual. Um, and, and we are not spared, if you like, from the kinds of, whether it's the forces of trade, structural transformation, and so on, that economies in the north have been subject to. We're not spared uh, that, those kind of dynamics in a developing country context. That's right. So when you see a missing middle, uh, you know, in in in, in wage uh, inequality, it tends to suggest that in manufacturing or um, you know labor-intensive sectors have roughly disappeared or are not performing as well. Is this the case in South Africa? Yes. So we we ascribe the U-shape. So we what we try and do in the study is ascribe this U-shaped wage curve, if you like, Mm -hmm. to four factors. One is technology, which Mm -hmm. is clear, right? Uh, The effect effect that's going to have on the distribution. The other is education. So people are becoming more educated. Are the returns going up, right? Or is the returns staying stagnant? The the third is your particular factor, which is structural change, Mm -hmm. namely... um, whether jobs are being lost in specific sectors relative to others given output share shifts. And then the fourth is the one which is very peculiar to South Africa is the role of institutions, whether it's trade unions and the minimum wage. Um, and so just to quickly answer the question about manufacturing, what we do find is correct, that you, you've seen a decline in mining and manufacturing share of GDP in particular that's led to uh, a significant loss of jobs in the middle of the distribution. Right, sort of semi-skilled workers um, in 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 specific types of tasks that are easily replaceable. I should just add before we move on in, deeply into South Africa, is one thing that does interest me is the extent to which um, the study for an emerging market or a middle-income country such as South Africa is observed, or the results are observed or not observed in other middle-income countries uh, in Africa. And I think that would be interesting. That would be certainly interesting. And, and, and one important point, though, is, is that institutions such as the minimum wage do serve a purpose, but at, at the different part of the distribution of your wage curve, right? You know, they're effective at the lower end, and that's why you have your you, but probably not in the middle, right? So is there any message there for, you know, a policy a message there that would, that would come from this analysis? Yes, I think the crucial policy message for us is exactly as you say, that, that the, the, if you like, the instinct of trade unions is, is protection at the bottom end, which is correct. And so you do see that's why we've got the U-shaped, right? Those workers at the bottom end have been protected in large part by fairly aggressive minimum wage setting. 
But on the other side, if you like, on the demand side for labor, firms also manage a wage bill, right? So firms are managing W times N. So, so if W is fixed, firms will either fire workers, but if they need to retain workers for various reasons, um, they're going to try and manage the wage bill, the total W times N. And in doing so, what, what we found, at least just based on informal evidence, is that firms cannot, uh, cannot um, reduce increases for wages of highly skilled workers because they're highly mobile and they will leave. Um, the minimum wage setting is given in, by regulation. And so firms inevitably manage the wage bill by squeezing the middle. And I think that's, that's if you like, a microcosm of the challenge that you face as a policymaker, if you like, right. when you're thinking about setting minimum wages, right? Right. So the, the U-shape also carries a good news, Harun, which is um, skills do matter. Right. And, and highly skilled, highly educated workers do reap the benefit of, of that education. The return is certainly high. And that leads me to discussing this issue of inequality of opportunity. It seems to me that, you know, societies or countries in, in Africa who really are interested in reducing inequality would have to invest more in human capital. Don't you think so? Yes, I would agree completely. I think. And how is this happening? How is this playing in South Africa? So I think in the sub-Saharan African context, I think there's been a lagging of enrollment in um, uh, secondary schooling and higher education rates and the quality thereof. So that would be my two big take-homes about uh, the challenge of human capital accumulation on the continent is focus on the secondary schooling system and then the higher education system. Uh, and then secondly, keep a really critical eye on quality. And and then, uh, leading, leading with that into South Africa, you find the challenge is not about enrollment. So enrollment rates are very high, both at the right through the system, from primary and secondary school, um, right up to high school level. Um, there's a key challenge around quality. So what our results, in fact, show, it leads right to the U-shaped distribution is despite increased human capital accumulation since apartheid ended, right? So high school graduation rates have increased dramatically, right? But at the cost of quality. Exactly. And that's, that's certainly showing in our human capital index. Exactly. Yeah. And as a consequence, employers have voted with their feet, right? Yeah. And so unemployment rates of these high school graduates has gone up, right? But in addition the kind of returns that they're getting have collapsed due to a variety of factors, right, including structural change and technology, but one of which is the quality of this high schooling. Um, and so for me, you know, ensuring that you perhaps, you always see the trade-off almost at perhaps even lower enrollment rates um, given, given a defined fiscal space for a policymaker. Lower enrollment rates uh, but higher quality would seem like an important debate and discussion to have. So ensuring equality of opportunity is critical. And one of the ways to do this is to improve the quality of education. Exactly. That would lead to, you know, highly skilled workers, you know, uh, uh, in, and, and, and high returns on labor market. Now, um, you know, since the end of the apartheid, things haven't been moving that fast. And the election in South Africa, Harun has just actually clearly stated that people have, have, you know, not been extremely happy with 
uh, the pace of change. Um, you know, some believe Af- you know, South Africa is in an inequality trap. What's your view about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the fact that we we, we emerge into uh, normality, if you like, as a, as, an, as a country, as a society, as a nation in 1994, um, with the, the highest inequality levels in the world along with Brazil, is represent, was representative of the challenge and, if you like, the legacy of apartheid. What we've done since then, though, is to only observe an increase in that inequality. While, interestingly, over the same period, Brazil's inequality has gone down. Um, So I think that speaks to both the structural uh, nature, right, of that inequality challenge, but it also talks to the extent to which we've been unable, if you like, to pivot the economy onto a growth trajectory that's more job generating, a growth growth path that is more labor intensive in nature. Because ultimately, and that's why wage inequality drives overall inequality, is that it's the zero earners in our distribution that generate these high genies. So in other words, the challenge of reducing inequality is a mirror image of the challenge of job creation in South Africa, which by extension is about changing the structure and the nature of economic growth in South Africa. That's a much, much bigger discussion. But I think um, uh, societies, uh, if you like, during the last election, yes, the the issue of jobs, certainly the issue of corruption loomed large. Uh, But it speaks to a society that we, as South Africans, we continue to struggle with the vestiges of apartheid, but also the inability to... um, transform our growth path onto a more um, uh, sort of equalizing um, environment. So where the gains to to all workers uh, are more evenly distributed. That's, that's uh, fascinating. Um, Harun, you know, what are a couple of examples of countries that have actually managed to uh, implement the type of reform you were just discussing, which is certainly a structural change, moving into more labor-intensive, uh, you know, uh, uh, sectors, and 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 you know, providing more opportunities to uh, to all. What are a couple of examples of places that have been extremely successful from your research? Yes, I mean, ironically, despite its current problems, I think Brazil has, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, Brazil has actually managed to reduce inequality levels. Um, your, your predecessor has done a lot of work on this. Exactly. Uh, um, but, but, but the story there is less about um, um, wage setting and, as I understand it, more about the improvements in the quality of schooling and enrollment rates. So, in fact, it was this big bang that came through from the human capital channel that managed to reduce the wage premia, managed to reduce shortages in the labor market. Um, and that, together with a growth trajectory that was possibly more um, labor intensive, led to the kinds of reductions in inequality you saw. Uh, I guess the third factor would have been a more active social security system. So in South Africa, you already have the social security system that is targeted at the poor, is inequality reducing. What we don't have are those first two channels. We don't have the human capital channel doing the work adequately, and we don't have, I don't think, a creative enough um, policy framework for shifting the economy onto a more labor-intensive growth path. 
That's right. And, and you know, what you're saying, Harun, is uh, countries that have managed to reduce inequality have done at least three important things. They have focused on inclusive growth. They have actually pushed a growth model that puts a lot of emphasis on uh, labor-intensive uh, uh, activities, labor-intensive sectors. These countries have certainly fought corruption because elite capture has clearly been one of the, uh, uh, the drivers of inequality. They have invested in quality human capital that has equalized opportunities for all. These are three very, very important uh, elements. But there are two orders that are quite important. One is uh, social protection. Cash transfers in some countries in Brazil, Borsa Familia, in uh, other countries in Tanzania, we you know seeing ESAF, a number of social protection programs, including conditional or non-conditional cash transfers, seem to have played some role. And uh, you know uh, the four, the, the last one is is uh, you know access or inequality of assets. So what's what's uh, your view on that last point? Yeah, so I think inequality of assets is an important um, it's an important element of if you like kickstarting uh, households out of a poverty trap, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it can be as simple as um, provision of title deeds for housing, right. so that assets are created for the poor. And in that process, can be can serve on the balance sheet as a um, as a um, uh, as a facility for accessing loans, for example. So I think you're right that if one thinks about unlocking assets amongst the poor and the role of the private sector in facilitating that, right? Whether it's uh, about facilitating um, low low income housing markets, um, whether it's about local government getting involved in encouraging. Um, uh, uh, enabling environments for small businesses and so on. I think those kinds that those kinds of strategies and interventions can unlock um, uh, assets, um, particularly in the case of uh, marginalised households. Harun, let me ask you one more uh, academic question. You and your colleagues in South Africa have been really investigating in in this area bringing together household administrative data to look at labor market dynamics and, and look at this, looking at these questions of inequality. Any leads, any hints from this new research? It's extremely promising because this is probably the only African country where I've seen all those data being put together to look at this question. Any hints, any new, uh, any finding that you can share here? So I think in terms of the approach and methodology, I, I mean, I think what excites me about this new work that we're doing is the use of um, something called the ONET data, which is the Occupation Information Network data, which is developed here in the U.S. It's a database of a thousand plus occupations uh, that are then matched to specific skills contents. It turns out, and that's what our paper does, and I think can be applied to at least middle-income countries in, in Africa, uh, there's a what we call a crosswalk available. You can match those occupation codes in your labor force survey data. That for me is very exciting because mm-hmm. you can start talking about the task content of different occupations Absolutely. in African labor markets. Um, I think there's that one category for me 
the second would be exactly as you allude to, that we need to look under the hood of um, African government statistics and see what kind of administrative data is available to us to do more innovative and interesting work, whether it's around enrollment rates, whether it's about um, delivery of uh, social protection and so on. I think the administrative data research agenda is, is new, and I think it's potentially very rich. It is definitely very rich. And, uh, you know, linked to the administrative data question is, is the broader issue of big data. How do you see the digital influencing that sphere? How do you see, can we leverage the digital and uh, digital revolution and, and, and the big data to actually start answering those questions on inequality? I think so. I mean, I think uh, a lot of the big data currently resides with the private sector. So I think it, it does require the World Bank through the IFC engaging with uh, the private sector and, and uh, private sector firms with regards to access to whether it's cell phone records, whether it's um, uh, insurance records uh, and so on. I think, and, and a lot of behavioral information can come out of that big data. We, we, we haven't explored enough of the linkage between what the private sector can offer and the kind of data they have and the questions we would like to answer. So for me, um, I, um, it's, uh, it's that kind of information that will lead us to, I think, surprising and new answers. For example, um, a private sector firm in South Africa was particularly worried about fraudulent claims amongst um, it was an insurance company, uh, fraudulent claims amongst uh, its client base. It then engaged with a big data firm to find patterns in the data to pre-identify high-risk clients, right? You can imagine how, though, those patterns in large data can also allow you to identify more creditworthy clients for a bank uh, so that they don't use blunt instruments such as if an individual is poor, they shouldn't be granted a loan. And and they're those kinds of things which I think... um, uh, still deserving of more uh, attention through through big data analysis. So digital could also help in addressing the inequality question moving yes. forward. Yes, definitely. Harun, that was fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us on the Afronomics podcast. And thank you listeners for tuning in. To learn more about Africa's economic growth, explore our data and see all the published work of the Office of the Chief Economist for the Africa region, please visit us at worldbank.org slash AFRCE. And please follow me on Twitter at Albert Zufak and share your views, questions, and ideas. Until next time, talk to you soon.